Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so... Last week, we ended in Isaiah chapter 39. In Isaiah chapter 39, what was happening was an envoy from Babylon had just come in to visit King Hezekiah to talk about his triumph over the Assyrians. Now, it wasn't really his triumph. All he was doing was kind of cowering in a corner praying, and the Lord was doing all the work. Because uh, one night, the Assyrians had come up to the gates of Jerusalem and they were ready to just slaughter the Hebrew people. And as Hezekiah went in and prayed, the Lord showed up and that night killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. So after that event, Hezekiah, he gets sick and then God heals him because he prays for the Lord to heal him and God answers his prayer. So this envoy from Babylon comes down to check on Hezekiah and in the middle of the visit, Hezekiah is like, man, it's so glad for you guys to, to, to be here. Do you guys want to see some cool stuff? And they're like, yeah, I mean, we're, we're down for cool stuff. So Hezekiah takes the envoy from Babylon and parades them through the entire castle and through the entire temple and shows off all their weapons and shows off all their gold and shows off all of their instruments of worship. And, and Isaiah comes around the corner after, after the, the prosperity tour is done. He's like, uh, hey, Hezekiah, what are you up to? And Hezekiah is like, oh, this, these guys, they just came down to check on me. And so I'm giving them a little tour of everything that I own. And Isaiah said, what did you show them? And Hezekiah said, there's nothing I didn't show him. I showed him everything. And Isaiah says, because of the pride in your heart, because of the pride that exists in your heart and also exists in the heart of the people, the Lord is going to carry every one of those things that you just showed off, off into the hands of the Babylonians with you and your sons as well. And Hezekiah's response was, well, at least it won't be in my day. At least there's peace in my time and I won't have to worry about what's happening to my kids because I won't be around to see it. So from that point, that event took place right around 701 BC. And that's where things ended. Now, uh, Isaiah 40 is where we're starting today and things are gonna pivot and change a little bit. But what I want you to see uh, before we get into 40 is the timeline of all the things that are taking place. Now, this is important for you to understand the scale of where we're going, because I'm really only saying one thing today, which is different than usual, because usually I say like 19 things, and then hopefully one of them will stick. But today, as we're going through these three chapters, there's one message that Isaiah is trying to get across to the people. And to understand this one message, you've got to understand the timeline of what this is talking about. So I put together some, some timelines and some slides. If you'll put the first uh, slide up there. This is the timeline of the Babylonian exile that I just told you that Isaiah told Hezekiah was going to happen. Now, Isaiah's ministry was between 736 BC to 687 BC. All right, that BC, that's before Jesus was born. So Jesus is like, hey, he's right here on the cross. That's he, the cross right here is on the timeline, okay? So work backwards in time, and then Isaiah's ministry, he preached for these, this period of time, 687. 
Sometime in the future, around 605 BC, I say 605 because these, depending on who you ask and what commentaries you read, the, the, the years kind of play plus or minus one or two years. So we're just gonna go with these. So around 605 BC, this guy named Nebuchadnezzar, maybe you've heard of him, he takes over control of Babylon and he goes on a rampage of taking over nations, kind of like Assyria did. And one of the first things he does is he comes back down to Jerusalem and he threatens Jerusalem, he threatens the king at the time, and he takes back some prisoners as a way to kind of flex his muscle. And one of the prisoners that he takes is this kid named Daniel. And you can read about his story in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Then around 597, Nebuchadnezzar comes back down to Jerusalem and he sieges the city again. And at this time, he overtakes the king and puts in a puppet king named Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the king of Israel, but he was not really a king at all. He was just a puppet king. And then around 586, Nebuchadnezzar is like, you know what, I think I'll just take the whole pie. He comes down, he besieges the city, he destroys the temple, he takes all of the uh, articles of worship, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, uh, the table of showbread, he takes all that stuff back to Babylon and he enslaves the entire nation. There are a few people left in the area of Judah that are not enslaved, they stay back home, but we're talking 90% of the people are rounded up, shackled, and marched by foot back up to Babylon. And if you're thinking geography, this is about where, this is where Jerusalem is today to where Iraq is today. That's the march we're talking about. But then in 538 BC, the Persians come into town under this guy named Cyrus and they destroy the Babylonians and the first decree of Cyrus is, we're not gonna have slaves like the Babylonians had slaves, so go ahead and send all of the Hebrew people back to Jerusalem and let them rebuild their temple. All of this stuff that I discussed takes place after Isaiah was alive. Now, if you'll go to the next slide. Isaiah, now, the, the little dots over here, 586 to 538, that's typically the exilic period. That's the time where the people of Ju Judah were enslaved in Babylon. Everything we talked about took place before Isaiah, or took place after Isaiah died. And not just like five years after. It took place a hundred years in the future before it happened. So this is the mindset before we get into Isaiah 40. Because what is happening is the prophet Isaiah is living in this period and he's writing to the people who will go through this period. He can see prophetically into the future what's gonna happen, what God is up to, because God is telling him, this is what I'm gonna do to the people. I'm going to, because of their pride, because of their sin, they didn't learn from the issues of Assyria. So they're gonna have to go through even more trials and they're gonna lose their home and they're gonna be exiled out to Babylon. But while they're there, I want them to know that they're still my people and this period isn't gonna last forever. And I'm gonna bring them home and they're gonna rebuild and things are gonna be better than it was before they lost their home. So Isaiah is writing to the people in this period, a hundred years in the future, and he's saying to them, comfort, comfort, comfort. Now I said before we started today that it was really only one 
kind of important thing that we're talking about today. And this is it. And this is the message from Isaiah 40, 41, and 42. And it's the idea that God makes provision and provides comfort for everything that you will need and go through years before you will ever need it or go through it. That's it. Thanks for coming. Isaiah took three chapters to drive this point home, and we're going to spend time going through that, but that's, that is essentially the sun we're revolving today. That, that's the message. That's the core message. The idea that our God knew everything that you would need and already provided in the sense of uh, a- actual, like, tangible things you would need, but also the emotional things that you would need, also the strength that you would need, but also the comfort you would need to go through those things because his purposes are going to be fulfilled in you going through those things. And what Isaiah is telling the people is that I know what your issues are going to be, and I've already provided for those things. I know what your struggles are going to be, and I'm going to provide for those things. Now, why this is, this is great news for the people of Israel, who are 100 years in the future, but what about for us? Why is this also good news? Because the story of the exile runs parallel to a larger story of the human race. See, we had a home in this garden called Eden. And our first parents messed everything up, and don't blame them, because have you, if we had gotten by some miracle to this point in history, With the garden not being messed up, I guarantee you someone in this room would have messed it up. Probably would have been me. But our first parents made a choice, sin entered the room, or entered the garden, entered this world, and um, the response for God was you can't live here anymore because of this sin, and so mankind was exiled from that relationship with God. And from that point forward until today, there has been a story of God working his purposes to redeem mankind to get them back to that place. We're not there yet, but we're promised that our king will return and he will, with a big trumpet shout, raise the dead and call those in Christ back and reestablish a new heaven and a new earth. And that will be the restoration, the final culmination of everything that mankind has been wanting. So when you look at your own life, there's a parallel of living in exile that looks so much like the people of God living in a foreign land in Babylon. And that's so helpful for us because it gives us a mind, uh, like a a frame of mind um, to kind of think about how we're supposed to think about this world. It puts us in a position where we, we are reminded constantly that we're not actually ultimately citizens of this world. We're citizens of a different world. When you were born again, that means you got citizenship of heaven and not this place. And this place, this world, this country, this city, this room looks more like an exile than it does your home. So stop trying to make this place look like your home when it's not your home. And that's difficult for us because we're also told in the New Testament that we're supposed to live peaceably among the people. We're supposed to get involved in things like, like government and we're supposed to get involved in things like, like, like the arts. And we're supposed to be involved in this. The people in exile were told by the prophets, go ahead and build homes, plant gardens, live there. Just remember that this is not your final home. 
make a home there, but just remember that like in the middle of the night, he could come and say, it's time to leave. And you can't be sitting in the garden, but like, oh, but just give me like five more minutes to just like this pretty little thing that I love so much. No, you gotta be able to forsake that stuff at a moment's notice because it doesn't, it doesn't hold your heart. It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't own you. And so while we're living here, and this is a land of exile, and we're supposed to be making a life and supposed to be spreading the gospel and, and, and living peaceably here, this ultimately is not our home. So there comes a point for Christians where you can no longer be a good American and also be a good Christian. Sorry, I'm tossing things up here. That means that we should be, we should be good citizens of the land we live in. We should, we, we should vote, we should get involved in, in things of this land, but also constantly be aware that there is a point at which we can no longer be good citizens of this world because this world will require us of being bad, to be bad citizens of our ultimate home. And as long as Christians understand where that line is, we are a very peaceable people but please don't ask us to cross that line because if you ask us which master to choose, it will not be the master of this world because our home is there and our master is coming back for us one day. So when we're reading the words of Isaiah, the comfort that he gives the people in this chapter who are living, a, they're not even, it's a hundred years in the future before they're experiencing this exile, the comfort that they receive from Isaiah we can draw from that well of comfort today. And the reason why is because we, like these people, live in a land of exile. So let's go to Isaiah 40 and start in verse one. Isaiah 40 verse one says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare, it's ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Essentially, the message is, take comfort because your sin has been pardoned. Take comfort because the land of exile that you live in will not be your ultimate home. The Lord is up to something. Verse 3, a voice cries out, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together and the mouth for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now I want you to imagine you're a Jew living in Babylon in 550 BC and you read Isaiah's words of comfort that were written a hundred years ago. You're having a bad day in Babylon. You had to go to school and learn about some foreign god named Marduk. You had to study the stars and the constellations and you had to learn the ancient Mesopotamian texts. And you're being indoctrinated. You're, you were given different names. You don't, you don't even have your Hebrew name anymore. You're having a really bad day. 
and you go home and you sit down and you're having dinner with your family and it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a Shabbat dinner, man. It's just not like home and you long for home because you remember home and there's a knock at the door and your friend is standing there and he's holding this scroll and he's saying, hey, you remember how we stopped gathering as a people and we stopped reading the Torah and we stopped caring and we just all was lost and you're like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. And he says, I was digging through some stuff in my attic from our move and look what I found. It's this old rolled up piece of paper and on it are the words of this guy, this prophet Isaiah, and he wrote them over a hundred years ago. Listen to what this dude said. Take comfort that your God has heard your prayers and he's pardoned your sin and in the midst of this desert land that you're living in, you're gonna hear a voice that cries out and says, get ready because the Lord is about to level some mountains and he's gonna make a a road home for us. And this this news, it just fills your bones with joy and you can't stop smiling because you thought all was lost and you discover this word from the Lord that was written a hundred years ago. And all of a sudden you start thinking differently. I'm going home. This isn't gonna be forever. I don't know when it's gonna end, but this isn't forever. And you start getting excited because it means that your exile from Babylon is gonna end one day. There's only one problem. You can be freed from your captivity in Babylon and go home and rebuild as a Hebrew. And you may be freed from the captivity of Babylon, but even though you're home, you still haven't been freed from the captivity of sin. There is a master that owns you that's not called Babylon. There's a master that owns you that's called sin. And it doesn't matter where you go or where you live, it still owns you and it still drives your emotions and it still tells you to do things that you know are not gonna be fruitful and you just can't fight this inner desire. This is why Mark in chapter one, verses one through three in the Gospel of Mark, takes this section of scripture and connects it with John the Baptist and what Jesus was going to do. Says the voice, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, a highway for our God, verse three. Mark connects in very verse one through three that scripture with what John the Baptist was doing. Who was the voice in the desert crying out that Isaiah saw? Isaiah saw John the Baptist. So now he's not just looking 100 years in the future, he's looking 700 years in the future. And what does he see 700 years in the future? He sees the people of Israel return from captivity in Babylon, but still their ultimate master has not been beat. And their their ultimate master is now, it's not Babylon, it's not the Persians, it's not the Greeks, it's not the Romans who were the ruling faction at the time. The issue is the issue that has always been the issue, and the issue is sin in the heart of mankind. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, that's always been the issue. And so when you're this Hebrew standing here listening to your friend read this scroll, this idea starts waving over you. And it's the idea that the Lord has got bigger plans than just bringing me home from Babylon. This entire bringing me home from Babylon captivity is just the start. When we get home, he's gonna set the plan in motion even further. And because we're home, 
the line of David is gonna continue and one day in the future, in some manger, in some backwater town, a child is gonna be born. And this child is gonna grow up and lead his people, not out of captivity from Rome, because look, we've done that enough. We've, God's people have been led away from the captivity of Egypt. They've been led away from the captivity of Babylon. But none of that solves anything because that's not the real issue. The real issue is the people of this world are gripped with a much stronger master and that is sin, but God has a plan for that. And this includes the plan for all of that. So remember our conversation when we started this and I said that I've got one thing I'm saying and it is to examine the comfort and the provision that God provides. I want you to think, put, kind of put that forefront of your mind. Okay, God is telling us he's got a big plan and he's telling us that he's gonna provide for that and, he's, and what do we have to do? What's our role to play? It's nothing. You just sit and wait and watch him do it. Well, that doesn't seem very fun. Like, can we do something? God, certainly you need me to do something. Nope, he doesn't need you to do anything. What he's going to do is a ball rolling that you can't stop, no nation in the world can stop. He's coming back and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so our role is to sit and behold. Our role is to sit and wait and watch and be overtaken by the majesty of our God who controls the nations to accomplish his purposes. But God knows in his pre preparation of the people and their struggles, uh, he, he's, he's telling them, look, I, I'm going to provide for you. I'm just going to just be comforted. He also knows that they will struggle with this because they're human beings. And so God anticipates that when he says through his prophet 100 years before it happens, hey, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. That the people of God, their response is, is going to be, okay, God, but what about human power? You know, we're slaves, you know that human beings own us and there's really no hope for us. Okay, God, you're gonna do this thing, but like, what about the strength of the nations? They're pretty strong. They seem to control all of the economies around the world. What about foreign gods and idols? What about all these things that we as human beings are be di being discipled by on a regular basis? What about how weak we are as a people? We've been in captivity for 40 years and it's not getting better and I'm weak and I just don't have the strength. When I told you that God provided and comforted, he also provided and comforted the answers to these anticipated questions 100 years before they showed up. And I'm reading them today to you because I anticipate that these might be some of the issues that you're going through today. Okay, Marshall, Yes, the Lord is going to have his way, but you don't understand how weary I am because of my family or my job or this economy or everywhere I look, I'm being told I need to think differently and let go of things that I've grew up believing that this is what it tells. You don't understand how tired I am. You don't understand how strong they are. You don't understand how much power they have. What does the Lord have to say to your critique what does he have to say to the same critiques that were going on 2,700 years ago? Go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? Cry this, all flesh is grass 
and all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Oh Lord, what about human power? They've enslaved us. Don't worry about human power. One breath from my nostrils can wither all of that away. Question answered. Go to verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations, they're like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. That word coastlands, you'll see it come up regularly. It's the prophet's way of saying that over all of the land in the world, what the Lord is going to do and what he has power over is not just the middle mass of land, it stretches all the way to the very ends and the coastlands of every civilization on planet Earth. So the critique that we have, well, what about the strength of the nations? They've got all these weapons of war. They've got all this technology. They've got all these things at their hands that they're using against you and against their people. The Lord answers that critique by saying, look, the Lord didn't consult man in creation. Nations are kind of like a water droplet in a bucket. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much they elevate themselves. They will not, never be able to elevate themselves ab- above the God who gave them their own life. Did God ask mankind? So, uh, so I made this thing called fire. What do you think about it? I made this thing called electricity. Thoughts? No, he doesn't care. He's God. He's established it, and this is his world. The next critique, well, what about foreign gods? What about idols? What about all these ideologies that we're um, being uh, indoctrinated into? Verse 19, an idol? (laughs) A craftsman crafts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not be moved. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Look, your concern with the ideologies and the idols and the foreign gods of this world, well, they're like wooden toys. Mankind is the one who's behind crafting these, and mankind is like grasshoppers before our God. All right, well, Lord, well, what about how weak we are as a people? Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. That's you. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. That's me. 
See, even youths shall, faith, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall and be exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Well, what about how weak we are, Lord? The weakest men are the most qualified men because they're the ones who are positioned to receive the strength from the Lord. All they have to do is wait. And that word wait in Hebrew is a word, it's kav, and it means to look with anticipation or to wait without action. That's fun. So Lord, how do I get strength? Like, is there something I gotta do? Is there some like spiritual iron I gotta go pump somewhere? Is like a diet I gotta change to? No, if you want strength when you're weary, then you wait without action. I read a book a long time ago that talked about how that Hebrew word kav is the root word for the word cord in Hebrew. And he was talking about the connection between waiting and being bound with the Lord, almost like how a rope is made. A rope is made of many cords just bound together and the strength of the cord is found in all the individual cords. And so if you want strength, bind yourself to the Lord. Abide in the Lord. That's where you find your strength. All right, well this is, okay, all right, this is helpful. Thank you, Lord, for answering our critiques and our issues. Thank you for planning things and doing things and for answering the, uh, in, anticipating our issues and our objections and for answering them before we could even ask them 100 years in the future. But what is it that you're going to do? How are you going to free your people from Babylon? Go to chapter 41, verse 1. It says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength and let them approach. Let them speak, let us together draw near for judgment. Who is the one who stirred up from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his word, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning i the lord the first and the last i am he see the coastlands have seen what i'm about to do and they're afraid the ends of the earth are going to tremble when they see what i have in store for the mighty nation babylon and this leader I'm gonna raise up from the east. Everyone helps his neighbor when they see what I'm up to, and they're saying, be strong, be strong. I know, he's, I know the Lord's on the move, but be strong. Gather the craftsmen, strengthen the goldsmith, and he who smooths the hammer with him who strikes an anvil, saying the, salt, the, the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, and I've chosen you, and I've not cast you off, so fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
So what is God up to? God is going to raise a leader from the east, just like he says in verse 2. And we know who that is going to be. We just talked about it. It's Cyrus, the head of the Persian army. God is going to raise up Cyrus in 539. He's going to come in and he's going to wipe out Babylon. By 538, there's going to be a decree that all the Hebrews are going to go home. And when the nations see what God is up to in verses 4 through 7, they're going to start building more idols. Holy smokes, the Lord is up to something. We've got to combat this somehow. So let's come up with some new idols that can combat whatever new thing he's doing. And the nations are always a step behind the Lord because every time the Lord is doing something, the nations are two steps ahead behind trying to forge some new idol. Well, God is doing some new thing. Well, how do we combat this? How does the kingdom of darkness combat the, the, the stuff of the Lord? Well, they have to come up with some counterfeit. And that takes time. And so while the Lord is working, the nations are trying to respond by creating these other idols. And what do the people of God do when they see the Lord on the move? They're strengthened. In verse 17, it says they're going to receive fresh water. In verse 18, it says the people are going to be refreshed because the desert land is going to open up with rivers and pools. In verse 19, it says that trees and gardens are going to spring up out of the wilderness. And it's at this point we start to see what God's really, we really start seeing his plan set in motion. God is going to send in Cyrus to send the Hebrews home, but that's not the end game. Once the Hebrews are home, they start rebuilding and the line of David is preserved. And this family has a child and this family has a child and this family has a child. And then there's this little girl named Mary. And she gets pregnant with a child and she gives birth to this child in a manger and names him Jesus. And Jesus grows up, gathers disciples and preaches the gospel. And the gospel is, God has sent me here to free you from captivity, not Babylonian captivity, sin captivity. I'm here to set the captives free. That's good news. So the end of the Babylonian captivity is not just the end of the Babylonian captivity. It's the start of the end of the exile forever. And so once we follow this lineage and we see what God is up to and Cyrus and the moving pieces and all of the amazing things that have got to be orchestrated in order for this to work and then we get to the manger and Jesus is born and he grows up and he, he gets hung on a cross and we start seeing all of the things that he's doing. Isaiah says, okay, okay, now I'm going to start telling you about what you should look for in this child. And he calls this child the servant. And this title carries through through the rest of the book. This is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, don't get lost in the fact that God, you think God is just in it for you, that he's going to free you so you can have a better life. That's not the offer. The offer from God Almighty is not a better version of your life right now. The offer from God is for you to put your life in the grave, to die to yourself and be resurrected into a completely brand new, wonderful life. That's the offer on the table. And it's going to come through this servant. We know his name is Jesus. He's been referred to as the Messiah, but the prophet is call, calling him the servant. And I want you to just behold the qualities of the servant in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, says the prophet, 
So we're watching Cyrus. We're watching the people return home. They start rebuilding the temple. They've got, we got Nehemiah. We've got all these prophets. And all of a sudden, Malachi preaches, and then, and then nothing. We've got 400 years of silence. And then out of nowhere, an angel shows up. And he speaks to this, this priest, and then he speaks to this, this, this unwed girl. And all of a sudden, after 40 years of silence, God is on the move. Who, who, what, what, is, what is the surrounding story? What is going on? It is this servant. So Isaiah is looking on the future, and he is now seeing this point in history, and he's seeing the Lord say, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in, my, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Really? Because that's how I would have done it. A bruised reed he will not break, meaning those who have been afflicted and taken advantage of. He's not going to come in and break them even more. He's going he's to care for them. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. With a, when you're talking about a little lantern, just a little, little wick, it's barely holding on. There's almost nothing out. And, and it's, he's not going to come in and just snuff that out just because he can. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and the earth. He stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Oh man, he's looking at the book of Acts now. He's looking at the, he's looking at the birth of the church. He's seeing to open eyes that are blind. Jesus did that. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeons. He did that. From the prisons, who, those who sit in darkness. He set those in darkness into a marvelous light. See, I, I'm the Lord. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, and nor my praise to carved idols. Before the, behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I'm going to tell you that they're going to happen. Come on, Jesus. This is Jesus. God is not just sending Cyrus to free Israel. He's sending a servant to free everyone. And this servant's going to be anointed by the Spirit. The servant's going to bring forth justice. The servant's going to not shout aloud or walk around with a big stick and beat people with it. He's not going to exploit people. He's not going to grow weary until his plan is accomplished. This servant is going to open blind eyes. This servant is going to set captives free. This servant is Jesus. Why is Isaiah telling us about this? 700 years before it happened because God always provides provision and comfort before we even know we need it. And this is what the people in the first century needed and it's what we need today. But here's the thing. When they were reading this, they had already, it had been written 100 years in the past. So what does that tell us? That tells us that there are ancient truths that are buried deep there are provisions and comfort that are, that are deeply buried in this book just waiting to be uncovered. Like a man who sells everything to buy some treasure in a field. A treasure is buried in here. 
Who is hungry enough to sift and to find it? That the, the, the truth, it's, it's right here. The, the comfort you need for whatever you're going through right now, it's right here. But we often wait until crisis strikes before we start go looking for it. Or we wait till it's Sunday morning at 10.30 to go looking for it. This is the proper place to go looking for that ancient truth. Can you please, pastor, tell us what it is? Because I don't take the time on a daily basis to look for myself. What happens if we hit a point in history where we can't do this regularly? What happens if we hit a point in history where you can't find these anymore? What happens when we hit a point in history where if you have not buried the word in your heart, you don't know what it says and you're a sucker for anyone who comes along and tells you what it says because you don't know any different. What would our lives look like if we had a steady diet of this stuff, these words of comfort and provision before crisis strikes? What would our lives look like if we abided in these promises, if our only worldview was hoping in God? Well, at this point, Isaiah is overwhelmed by what he sees. And in verse 10, he breaks out in worship. Holy smokes, look at what the Lord is doing. He's standing at 700 years before this is happening and he's seeing the moving pieces and he's, he's like, this is, this, is, this is amazing. What he's up to, holy ghost. What's his only response? Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. What's the only proper response when you are overwhelmed with all the things He's working for His glory and on your behalf for your good? There's only one response for the people of God. Sing about it. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages of Kedar inhabitants, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And at this point in verse 14, the Lord starts speaking through the prophet. And the Lord says, look guys, for a long time I've held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself, but now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and I will pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and I will dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. Why? Because these are the things I do. I do not forsake them. These are the things I do. It doesn't matter how dark your life is. He can turn it to light. It doesn't matter how blind you've become because of stupid decisions you've made in your life, he'll guide you. That's good news. 
It doesn't matter how shriveled your vegetation or how vast your desert or how deep your valley, he will put a song in your mouth and cause rivers to spring up out of nowhere because this is what he does. And that's where I wanna pause because it's at this point where we have to just sit and behold. What does this require on our behalf? Not much other than beholding. So I want you to just think about what Isaiah is telling the people living in exile before they're ever marched off to exile. And I want you to think what he's saying through the Spirit of God today. I want you to consider the depths of the provision and the comfort that is offered in this text. I want you to consider how much God has orchestrated to bring freedom to this entire world and set your home free. I want you to consider how much bondage that you choose to tolerate that he has already said, I can set you free from that. And in considering all of that, I want you to I want you to meditate on this idea that what God is offering to you is the same thing that he offered those captives in Babylon. And that is not just freedom from this life and happiness from this life and a better job with more money and a nicer house and a different car and better kids and a prettier wife. Stuff that this Lord, that, that, that this world sells to you and dresses up like, like, like a Halloween costume. This is the Lord. The Lord's behind this. Look what the Lord wants you to have. Guys, it's not the Lord. That's the enemy. And it's a snare. And if you buy it, you'll be in a worse position than you were before. So let me be abundantly clear on what the Lord is offering. He is offering death. He's offering a share in his persecution. He's offering trials and tribulation that come with purpose because they perfect you in ways that you cannot be perfected any other way. And so that he, he's offering discipline to those he loves He's offering tension and trials now so that you can be perfected for what's coming next. If you want to be ready for the glorious inheritance that's coming our way, the offer from the Lord today is to bury your flesh as deep in the dirt as you can through the act of repentance and let him raise you up into new life and walk in the newness of his spirit. That is what is offered. And he has provided every ounce of comfort and provision to accomplish that work. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.